0: Hello, hello, my beautiful friends. It's Isabella Lomkeker, the World Messenger, and I'm inviting you for another episode of Legacy Leader Show. This will be epic because my guest has so much wisdom and opportunity for everyone to learn from. He's not only author of Stalling for Time, my life as FBI Hostage Negotiator. He's one of the most known hostage negotiators and with a trajectory of career of 30 years with FBI and 10 years in that amazing role. But he has some amazing stories to tell. And obviously, author of a phenomenal book, speaker, consultant, and so much more. Without further ado, let me introduce you to Gary Nessner. Gary, how are you?
1: Hi, Isabella. It's a a pleasure to be with you today and to have a nice conversation.
0: Likewise, uh, it's just always nice to have guests that bring to the table so much wisdom and experience and world that is ever so changing. And operating, unfortunately, seems like quite a bit on crisis and reactive responses. What are your thoughts?
1: I mean, I think life in general is is all about... um, cooperation between human beings and whether we're talking between um, relationship and family or uh, challenges at work or internationally. I mean, everything's about people trying to find a path towards a cooperative relationship that works to our mutual benefit. So everybody kind of shares that uh, philosophical goal but how do we get there? That's, that's more of the challenge. And um, you, you mentioned I'd been doing this for 10 years. I, I was a negotiator for, for 23 years of my 30 years in the FBI, and I was the chief negotiator for the last 10. But what I learned through now over you know 40 some odd years of being involved in the negotiation business, that um, the techniques and the things that I learned in dealing with people in crisis uh, we're highly successful in life and death events, so why wouldn't they be even more effective in human interactions that can be challenging, but maybe not quite at that level of of uh, stakes? So, you know, and it is a lot of things I've learned about how to communicate with people and how to listen and understand and create a relationship. To me, it's the pathway to essentially. Every every successful outcome.
0: I love that perspective. But before we go into that, so what that looks like, as we know, I was actually recently doing analysis and statistics and seeing how much actually actual communication and conversation is missing in every. Aspects of business or 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 to the level that needs to happen so that it's clear that it's understood and that connects with others obviously being master connector and be able to connect. With others i'm sure it's a crucial element in negotiation, but how did you get into first of all to work for FBI and how was your path forward with all these amazing accomplishments you did over a tenure of 30 some years.
1: Well I I wanted to be in the FBI since I was uh, probably 8 years old or something like that and um you know I I saw a television show about the FBI and and it instantly appealed to me as you know an exciting challenging career you know in those days the FBI was looked at you know FBI agents were almost a godlike status you know you're chasing bank robbers and arresting spies <laughs> and for a young uh, for a young boy, I said, "My, I guess it just couldn't couldn't get better than that." So it be- it became my uh, my sort of goal, and and then through my education and so forth, it actually came true at some point in time. And um, right after I got into the FBI, there was this uh, new and emerging discipline called hostage negotiations, and it actually it was uh, originated in New York City Police Department. And instead Mm -hmm. of simply showing up during the crisis and saying, surrender, or we're going to come in and kill you, um, they developed uh, an approach where we slow things down a little bit, stabilize the situation, de-escalate to the extent you can, and open up a dialogue and use effective communication skills to resolve conflict. And that just appealed to me a great deal. So I, I got the training to become a negotiator fairly early in my career, and it Obviously, it 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 took hold for me. Um, Initially, there was only um, just two two or three negotiators full time in the FBI, and there were three hundred part time. So you might be working organized crime or white collar crime or healthcare fraud or whatever as your day job. But if there was a crisis, you would become a negotiator. For me, I worked terrorism cases and overseas hijackings and kidnappings. So that was pretty interesting in and of itself, as you might imagine.
0: Um... But
1: then when I'm back in the States and I'm working, I'm also responding to um, hostage and barricade situations that the FBI worked or or I was assisting the police. And eventually, uh, I was asked to be one of the two full-time people that ran the program. And then for the last 10 years of my career, I was the chief of of, of all of it. But, you know, it it was um, so it happened, Isabella, more through serendipity than through calculated career planning, yeah. but it worked for me, and I, and I really felt as though, uh, and I learned a lot along the way. I was certainly a far better communicator at the end of my career than at the beginning of my career, but, you know, it's all about becoming a good listener. When the New York City Police Department started their program, it was really focused on bargaining, you know, okay, mm-hmm. you're in a bank, you've got two hostages, and you want a getaway car, and While you're waiting for the getaway car, you want some food. And, you know, okay, I can send you in some food, but you're going to have to let one of those hostages go. It was just a, you know, you scratch my back, I scratch your back. And we didn't give anybody anything unless we got something in return. So, pretty strictly a bargaining focused um, arrangement. When I took over the program in 1990, I felt as though what police were really doing was more crisis intervention, suicides, uh, domestic where the guy's having an argument with his wife or workplace violence where the uh, employee comes back in and he's angry because he's been terminated by his, as he sees it, his unfair, unappreciative uh, boss. In those situations, you don't come in and say, um, you know, I'll give you a hamburger if you let your wife go. I mean, that's not what it's about. It's it's a different dynamic. Yes. So what we did was we borrowed from the mental health community, from the counseling community, and took on the Carl Rogers approach of active listening, and it really had a dramatically uh, a positive impact on negotiations. Uh, to the to some extent today, but particularly more so back in those days, the FBI basically taught everybody in the world this approach: um, local police, international police, and it's pretty much been adopted universally, and the set of skills that we teach—it's all about um, you know a restatement of contact and a reflection of feelings, um, labeling the emotions we hear, asking open-ended questions, uh, being empathic, non-aggressive—you um, know those are things that help us achieve a level of uh, a level of influence over someone and convincing them that. It is a better course for them not to harm their victim or their hostage, not to harm themselves. And you know those skill sets, you know I found translate m- much more broadly in life and work, um, you know, how we talk to our employer, how do we talk to a coworker? How do we communicate with a neighbor with whom we're having a conflict over the fence that runs between our house, whatever it might be? And it all boils down to, giving people an opportunity to be understood and appreciated. And we do that through listening. And the reason they're called active listening skills is they're not passive. You know, passive listening, you're just sitting there nodding your head or whatever, and that's all well and good. But Mm -hmm. if you really want to be effective, if I really want to convince you that I understand how you feel about something and, and the issue or problem or concern that you're dealing with, then I have to show that. I have to demonstrate that by paraphrasing in my own words. Okay, now let me, let me make sure I understood what you've just told me. You've told me that uh, you, know, you were forced to leave your country at a young age and, and uh, you, know, you lost family members to a terrible crisis and then you relocated to a different country. What, whatever it might be, you may for the first time be the person that's, that's really listening to p- people who feel they're not listened to or understood yes. or respected. It's the cheapest concession we can make. Now I'm giving you nothing other than my time and my understanding. And I'm proving that I understand you by using my words to tell me what you told me. The mm-hmm. beauty of it is if I get a little bit wrong, you'll clarify it for me and now I know even more. Uh, I have an even more accurate sense of, of what you're going through. But but there's two parts of that. It's not just what happened to you, but how did it impact on you? How do you feel about it? How did it change you as a person? If I can tap into that in my communications, I've hit a home run, as we say, or scored a yes. touchdown or whatever metaphor you want to use. You know. And you know, Stephen Covey, the business guru says, first seek to understand and then to be understood. And it's really powerful something we've known for, for a long, long time. Because if I invest the time and energy and effort into understanding you and your story and what you've been through and how it's affected you, then eventually I'll get an opportunity in our non-crisis conversation where you will make some inquiries about me and I'll have a chance to share with you how I feel about something. That's how relationships are built. It's a give and a take. Yes. But too often in the business negotiation world, we're in a rush to get right down to the business and get yes. you to sign on the dotted line by the number of widgets we want to sell, whatever it is. And in reality, we have to slow things down and invest the time to create the relationship. I mean, it sounds silly, but it's one of the reasons that corporate people go out and play golf together, you know, because we have an opportunity on the golf course or, you know, whatever activity you do. To form a, a relationship of, you know, I, I really like this person, they're kind of fun to be with. And um, I think they're interesting, they have an interesting background. And, and you know, and that leads to a, a commitment where people want to do business with you. And, you know, you could say that's manipulation, it's really not if it's done genuinely and sincerely. Absolutely. You know, you know we, we, we've even had it where we've had hostage takers kind of know what we're doing, and they'll say i know what you're trying to do you're trying to listen to what i have to say and so that you can you can influence what i do absolutely yes that's exactly what i'm trying to do i want to understand what you're going through today what problems and concerns that you have because i want to try to be able to help you you know it's it's beautiful if you think about it that way we don't have to pretend like this is some secret mission yes that's exactly what i don't want to see you get hurt i don't want to see anybody else get hurt and i for me to help you, I need to understand a little bit more about what you're going through and why you're responding to uh, the facts and circumstances this way, you know, so maybe we can work together to find a, a solution. So mm-hmm. it's pretty simple stuff and sometimes it's, it doesn't seem complex enough for some people, They're, they want the recipe, give me the, uh, yes. no, no, I, I want, I want <laughs> the cookbook that's going to give me the 15 <laughs> steps I have to take and I want to take them in order. Uh, it, 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 to, to get what I want, you know, I it, when I was in the FBI, created uh, a, a model called the Behavioral Change Stairway Model, uh-huh. and it's universally used in the negotiation business now. and And I always teach it from the top step, which is um, essentially cooperation, which is our goal. And law enforcement, we've got a crisis; people's lives are in line. We want cooperation. Cooperation to not hurt anybody, cooperation to surrender peacefully, cooperation so we don't have to go in and endanger the lives of one of our police officers. So to to get that cooperation, I've gotta be able to exert some level of influence. That's the next step down. The next step below influence is to create some sort of rapport between you and the other person. And how do you get that rapport? You get that uh, rapport through the demonstration of empathy understanding, not sympathy, I feel sorry for you, empathy, I understand what you're going through. And that comes from active listening skills. So I created this stairway model as a way to illustrate the process. But even police negotiators, I had them say, I'm stuck on that third step. And I don't know how to get to that fourth step. I said, you're missing the point. You know, there's no clear cut, do this, and then you do that. And then you do that. I said, it all works together. I'm just trying to illustrate that you have to earn the right to be of influence to somebody. You you know, it just doesn't come because of your rank, your title, your position, whatever it is, you know, you have to earn the right and you have to earn the right by showing I'm a good, decent, caring person. And this is very important in my form of life because it's not what people expect from a police officer or an FBI agent. They expect us to be very officious, very authoritative, you will do this. You're going to do that. I've got the power over you. And instead, they say, "Hey, Isabel, this is Gary. I I know you're going through a tough time in there. How can I help you? You know, I really want to help." That's not what you expect. And and particularly with individuals that have a negative uh, history with law enforcement, certainly not what they expect. So we present something that throws them off a little bit, but in a good way. And they said, "Well, this person finally somebody's." wants to hear my point of view, you know, I'm holding this guy and I'm going to kill him because he fired me and he's a son of a bitch boss, you know, and you say, it sounds like you're really angry at your boss for the way you feel he's treated you. I'm not saying kill your boss. I'm saying, I understand how you feel. I understand that you feel unappreciated and that the work that you did was not recognized and you feel you've been treated unfairly. Is that right? Yeah, if I get that wrong, they'll probably say, "Well, no, I don't think I was treated unfairly. I just, I just, um, I just didn't get the recognition I wanted." Okay, well now I've kind of fine-tuned this point that's going to help me in my next uh, question or inquiry. You know, so it's the recognition piece that's important. Uh, you know, so that's what a negotiator and a negotiation team do. We keep our ears attuned to these, these verbal clues that. Help us understand the motivation that's driving behavior. And then we ultimately try to get the person to think beyond the tunnel vision. You know when you're in a crisis, there's only one solution. I have to do this. And you're not thinking clearly. And so what we try to do is expand now wait a minute, there are some other things you could do. you know, you know, have you talked thought about perhaps uh, taking some legal action against your boss if you feel like you were wrongfully terminated, you know? And, you know, killing your boss isn't going to get your job back and it's, you know, so forth and so on. But we can't start off that way. You know, we can't show up and say, sir, you know, I've done this many, many times. We're going to talk for two hours or three hours. And eventually you're going to change your mind and surrender peacefully. So instead of wasting two or three hours, why don't we just do it now and get it over with? Well, they're not ready. You haven't earned the right yet. They haven't had an opportunity to to share their feelings, concerns. So, you know, all things in their time. The name of my book is Stalling for Time. It's not that we purposely elongate the situation, but what we learn is if we slow things down and de-escalate, we have an opportunity to create that relationship, to listen, to understand, to devote our time and energies towards trying to Treat this person with dignity and respect and helping them find a way out. It's it's kind of simple, you know, uh, obviously, yes. but people <laughs> don't think of it that way. And I should let you ask a question. I've been babbling on a bit.
0: No, I love what you're sharing, how you connect the dots and giving the bigger overview uh, and a picture for everyone to understand that are watching and listening, Gary, because you're right. People always think the solutions are most complex and they want a silver bullet, also shortcuts, right? But they don't realize that are in the simplicity, but yet, even though they look simple and easy, they're not. They require so many elements that so many miss, the cues. And they're not willing to self-train. They're not willing to put that extra work. So with that in mind, I'm curious, Gary, uh, obviously you, you saw opportunity. You saw opportunity in the 90s to develop and show different models. And as they say, rest is history, right? And, and influence how so things are done internally in the United States. And, 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 and then also, obviously, on international level. What are some of the biggest lessons that you learn uh, during some of the hostage negotiation, dire situations uh, that that really can help? Because right now, as I mentioned earlier, either we like it or not, a lot of people are responding in crisis mode versus preventative and proactive way. And maybe this can also help them to put some things in in perspective.
1: I think the biggest thing, which is also the, Most important attribute of a successful negotiator is self control. I mean, when you go into a challenging situation, a challenging discussion, the bottom line is that you really can't control the other person. You can try to influence them, but control you don't have. What can you control? You can control yourself and how you respond, how you react, how you demonstrate um, your gestures, your voice level so forth and so on you know so if you can learn and some people are quite naturally good at this and others are really bad at it and but most of us can work on these skills just maintain your self-control it does have an impact on others it it um it subconsciously influences others if you're all angry and mad at me and i'm seemingly un Unfazed by that. And I say, okay, Isabella, I understand. I can hear you're angry and so forth. I'm acknowledging you, but I'm not saying, oh yeah, well, what about you? You shouldn't be doing this. And, you know, that only ratchets up the, the, the interaction. So control yourself is really the, the number one thing. Slow down, take your time, be patient, you know, leverage a team. If, if you're working in that context, Don't be afraid to take a time out or a break and say, you know, we've talked about a lot of issues here for the last couple hours. Got a lot to think about myself. And and I'd like to sit and meet with my team and see if we can come up with some other ways to approach dealing with this issue. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, it's not like I got to get them, I got to get them to sign on the dotted line before I leave the room, you know, but if we do all these things, I'll be the first to tell you, there's no guarantee that you will make the sale or or obtain the agreement if you do all these things I've talked about. However, if you do make the agreement, it's probably because of these things. You see the difference is, I mean, you can, it's the old saying, you can fool some of the people all the time. You know, you can hoodwink (laughs) some client occasionally and and screw people over on a business deal. But for most people, you know, if you, are consistent and you treat people well, they will be drawn to you. And in fact, there is times where where they're making their decisions slowly on uh, solely on an economic number. I'm sorry, Isabel, your price point is just simply beyond what we can pay. And you say, oh, I'm very unfortunate. I feel like we're giving you the best price we possibly can. But you know, I understand you're gonna move in a different direction, and that's fine. I only hope that if things don't work out with your new vendor that you would at least consider giving us an opportunity to work with you again, don't burn a bridge, don't be angry, don't be insulting, leave it open. And yes. typically what I found is those clients that are cheap and, and base their opinions solely on a number are often disappointed with what they ultimately get. Yes, they, they get the low bidder, the low quality, the low performing entity because they've been sold the bill of goods. So when they dropped that, they're gonna say, you know what, this isn't working out. Let's go back to Isabella because, you know, she was straight up with us and um, she was right. We, we didn't get what we were really looking for with going this other direction and you haven't burned a bridge, you know, so that's, I think those are important things to remember. And, you know, I, I identified a bunch of qualities um, that make a successful negotiator and, You know, there may be a little different than what people think. I think it's genuineness, sincerity, trustworthiness, um, honesty, integrity. Mm. And you know what the number one is in my very informal uh, research, the number one quality of a successful negotiator. Likeability, plain old likeability, just being a likable person. Well, you say, well, of course. Well, really? You know, I mean, if it was, you know, it, it's so powerful. People want to work with people they like, mm. plain and simple. Now, what makes somebody like somebody else? That's a whole different discussion. You know, what are the qualities that someone else finds likable and somebody else finds objectionable? And and you have to be open-minded. I, I recently, recently met someone new uh, socially here, and I didn't like this guy at all at first. I just thought he's not my kind of person. But after two or three more interactions, I really like him now. You know, I gave it the opportunity. I didn't uh, make a rash decision and shut the door on on the relationship. And then I found you know, there were some things I didn't appreciate or I misinterpreted. Uh, And now I think this is a really fun, interesting person, but you got to get used to their sense of humor. Well, I think we kind of need to treat our clients that way too. You know, don't don't rush to a conclusion that we can't work with these people you know, persist, try, try again, you know, and if it doesn't work now, maybe it'll work later. I, I, I used to go to hostage situations to help the police. Um, and there was a big prison riot I went to and um, right after Waco. And um, they'd been doing it for a couple of days. And when I got there to help them and, and I made a suggestion, we should think about, or you may want to think about doing the following. And they said, well, we did that three days ago. And it didn't work. And what I said was, well, that was three days ago. You know, wow. haven't, things, haven't things changed? You don't, think, you don't think anything's changed in three days? There's all kinds of fatigue issues, there's frustration issues, there's this or that. This is not the same place that it was three days ago. Yeah. You know, just because it didn't work before, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad idea. It just means that they weren't ready or receptive to that idea back then, Mm -hmm. but they may be later on. I worked three or four prison riots where what the inmates accepted on day six, seven, eight is exactly what was offered on day one. Wow. But they weren't ready for it psychologically. Now we're in charge of the prison. We're going to tear the place apart. We're going to show the authorities, you know, we don't like the way they were treating us. We're going to, do all the things we want nobody's going to tell us when we have to go to sleep and you know so forth and so on but after a couple days prisoners are like any other human beings they get their creatures of habit they want to get back into the routine so the ideas and suggestions that you offer on day three or four now all of a sudden became become more palatable than they did on day one you know and openly they'll agree to you on day seven or eight so i always tell people just don't have this waste bin next to you. We said, Oh, we tried that four days ago, throw it away, don't ever bring it up again. Well, you know, mm. not so much. So that's just a little tangent
0: that is fantastic actually a reminder because you're spot on a lot of times we are quick to dismiss and uh or or not to not even try again but try it from different angle and and position differently and and ask more questions and probe uh and when conditions and environment changes uh obvious opportunities changes as well and ultimately what is the goal and and what's possible right if we don't allow ourselves to go there we'll never
1: Yeah, Yeah. uh, yeah, absolutely right. And the other thing we tend to do is dismiss things that we don't think are important. Yeah, you know, yeah. Well, you don't really want that. Well, if they keep bringing it up, you better listen to it because you know it may seem like a trivial thing to you, but it's important to them. I way back in the '70s in Washington D.C., they had a a hostage situation with uh, a group of Hanafi Muslims, and they were holding a fish. Official hostage and one of the things that one of the and i am give you the real short version that the head terrorist for lack of a better term wanted a whole bunch of parking tickets taken care of you know 20 30 parking tickets he'd gotten and they just kept dismissing it because wait, this is a big hostage situation there's people's lives on the line and you keep talking about these stupid parking tickets i mean who gives a damn but he kept bringing it up and you know, after a while, it finally dawned on them: this is an important issue for him. It may seem trivial to us, irrelevant to us, immaterial to us. But if he keeps bringing it up, it's important to him, and we need to address it. You know, so they say, "Yeah, okay, we'll take care of the parking tickets." You know, and we we can do that. So you have to have your ear tuned to those sorts of things. You know, the, the, the things that you or I might find uh critically important may not be so much for someone else and and conversely they may feel strongly about an issue that we think is completely trivial and unimportant that's why it's important to be a a good listener to understand what's what are the things that are driving their behavior how
0: true is that? And and I love what you said, um, because we see a lot of, of those issues here in a working environment, don't we? And, and a lot of organizations don't pay attention so much on their talent, what talent is saying and where the friction is. And sometimes just addressing something simple uh, and showing good faith or interest or desire to... to um, compromise or find alternative and offer something that will not necessarily cost more but just gives more flexibility and if we are open to hearing and exploring and finding mutually beneficial options, I feel like a lot of things will be much better and we're a lot of times stuck in the old way of thinking, so speaking of that, what would you say there were some most beneficial things um, uh, that that were or role models or mentors for you, the most beneficial during your career path? And and, and how do you continue learning and engaging and progressing and creating this, not only uh, a phenomenal legacy for yourself in active duty, but also how you shaped and reshaped FBI department for negotiation?
1: Well, I think I've had a lot of mentors along the way and hopefully I've learned from. In fact, I, I, I've often said that probably, if I have a really great skill, it's picking a good mentor. Mm -hmm. Uh, It started early in my FBI career, I said, you know, who are the agents working on the squad that I'm assigned that are the most successful, productive, uh, well regarded, you know, that's who I want to be like, that's who I want to learn from. And I think what I found and certainly I practiced it later in the other direction, when you as a young person eager to learn, go to such a mentor thats someone that's been in your profession for quite a long time, almost universally, they will feel honored to help you. They want to pass on things that they've learned and skills and abilities. And Mm -hmm they will generally take the time. I'm not, it's not universal, but in most cases, I think people will say, you know, this is a young, eager um, person starting off their career. They want to be the best they can. They they seem to want to work hard and put in the time and the energy to be successful. I want to help them if I can. And boy, then you've really opened up uh, great opportunities for yourself because, you know, now I've got not only whatever I've learned in the academic context, but now I've got this skilled practitioner, you know, that's telling me what to do. I mean, and and the FBI, we have an FBI academy and they teach you all the things you need to know, but it's really only a small part of the job. You really have to learn while doing. So for me, I I realized quickly that, hey, I'm going to find the person that does this better than anybody else. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to follow them and learn from them and listen to what they have to say. Doesn't mean you do everything that they do because personalities are different, yes. but I think that's important. So I, I had a lot of mentors a- along the way. And, um, you know, I, I think, um, I think, I think we are all wise I, I, people today tell me, I said, well, what about all these people teaching negotiations? Do you feel any competition? I said, absolutely not. I said, if you're, Wanting to become a negotiator, whether it's in the law enforcement context or the business, get training from everywhere you can, every time you can, from everyone you can. Then it's a smorgasbord. I like this, what Isabella says. I like this that Gary says. Uh, I don't like so much what that person says, but he's got some good information on this. Pick and choose the things that fit your personality. that you feel comfortable incorporating into your repertoire you know and Mm -hmm. and i think that's the way to be because almost everybody has something valuable to share um and a lot of times uh, in my old business is not so much that you had this new concept but how do you explain it Uh, for years when i speak uh, i'm a storyteller and to me that's how people learn you know um you know, and I think that's, I, I did one for you earlier. I talked about the guy and his, and his speeding and his parking tickets. Yes. You'll remember, You'll remember that story. You don't know the whole story. You don't know all the details, but you'll remember that little vignette because, yes. ah, well, that makes sense. Now here's this big life and death stuff going on. And there's this obscure point that this guy was focused on and we didn't pay attention to it at first. Well, there's a lesson there and you remember it in that context. You know, so I mean, that's again, I'm I'm rambling and getting far afield, Isabel. But that, you know, that that's um, that's how kind of look at things. Learn from everywhere you can, and be uh, the best that you can be. That's
0: fantastic advice and to show us also uh, what attributed beside your desire to continue to learn, because a lot of leaders, when they get specific on such a visible, prominent roles to lead a department and to uh, shape direction, stop learning. And that is troubling and, and, and sometimes alarming. And then the ones that continue learning and learning even from their uh, employees and everyone, as you mentioned, uh, and perfecting and improving and making things better better continue to consistently project trajectory of success
1: yeah you know i've I've been teaching negotiations now for 42 years oh my goodness and it's pretty Pretty rare (laughs) it's pretty rare where somebody comes up with a question i haven't heard before yes but occasionally they do sometimes i have a an answer as well nobody's asked me that but here's my thoughts on it but i also do something else every once in a while I don't know. I'm not sure. It's okay. You know, I don't have to be the guru that has every single answer. You know, that's a tough one. I'm not sure what I would do. I think mm-hmm. it would depend on, a, on some other circumstances. And then I do this. What, do you, what would you do? You know, how do you it think does. you would handle it?
0: Yeah, Gives
1: me a chance to maybe learn from this person in the audience. And um, because, it, you know, it's like riding a bicycle. I have, I have three adult children now and seven grandkids and when i taught my three kids to ride a bicycle they all learned at a different uh level you know some real quick others took much much longer a lot of falls and scraped knees and all that kind of stuff but at the end of the day they all knew how to ride a bike one as well as the other so what's the 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 principle is it's not the speed with which you learn the skill it's how well do you learn it you know and ultimately Mm -hmm. they all learned the same skill at their own pace in their own time, you know, with with help. And I think um, I think that's important. I, I always used to tell a story that um, when I ran the FBI crisis negotiation course at the FBI Academy, there was a brand new FBI agent coming through the training to become a negotiator, and I heard him do a role play very early in the training, and I walked to him. I said, "You're the best negotiator I've ever heard in my life." You know, he's kind of what? <laughs> And I said, You're the best negotiator I've ever heard. i said, you you are so natural. You're so empathic. you have the right voice. you You come across, you will be successful, even if you don't go through the rest of this training. He was like in day two of a two-week course. Wow. And he was that good. And you know, and i I was envious. I said, you know it, you <laughs> you you have are doing naturally what's taken taken me years to do that's fine recognize that it's not a contest you know it's I something to, it's something to be valued and recognized and uh, and and praised you know and um, yeah and you know it, it's this carried over later uh, in my career because when I would be at a situation like a Waco mm-hmm. I would make sure that in between phone calls with David Koresh or whoever we we're talking to that everyone on the team had an opportunity to make comments about um, what they heard, what they thought, what their opinions were, what their recommendations, what's their evaluation. And I think a good leader, and, and I know your focus very much on leadership, yes uh, provides that opportunity. I knew at my very senior level back then, if I sat down at the table and I said, here's how I see it, here's what we're gonna do, then everybody shuts up. The boss has said what we're doing, and we're gonna do it. So you have to work real hard, even though you may know clearly in your mind, the pathway that you're probably gonna take, you've gotta slow down and take the time to ask everybody in the team, what did you think? What did you hear? Do you have any great ideas? And if somebody else comes up with an idea that you were already gonna say, say, hey, that's a great idea. Good for you. You know, that's that's a, That's a very helpful way of looking at that. I think we need to give that strong consideration. I mean, give your team a sense that they're listened to and they're yeah. appreciated and their opinions, thoughts uh, have value. I, I, it just seems, um, seems the right way for me, you know.
0: I love your attitude and I hope that everybody watching and listening again, it's taking a lot of notes and also listening again, if needed to, because you're right, we don't praise enough and we always feel like it's a competition or how is this going to reflect on me? And, and, it bringing, really brings the perspective of insecurities and in reality, we need more great talent and we need to recognize what they're good at it. If we don't tell them how they will know what, what, what they stand out, whether it's the best qualities or what we, want them to do more of right and yeah. I think it's a tremendous opportunity to change minds and how we lead honestly to tell you the truth Gary I would love to be the FBI agent when I was younger but you know it didn't work out and 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 I have to say I was like okay but if that didn't work out let me play in the leadership side because uh, um, looking back and when you mentioned how you started with agencies uh, with the agency, I'm sorry, and, and specifically build, build your career. It, it's never too late to apply some principle and what excites ultimately of helping people, right? May change yeah. and making things better and just having that commitment clear and known and exude that every day. I'm sure you mentored a plethora of phenomenal agents that are still working and as a result of your leadership uh, thriving today. And that's what really we need a moral of, don't you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've been retired from the FBI for twenty years. I'd like to think, you know that some of the things that I uh, developed or helped develop or helped spread are continuing to be factors in the work that people do towards saving lives. Mm-hmm. and that those people in turn share those stories with the people that come after them. We all Step on the shoulders of the people that came before us, and that's just simply the right way, you know and and that's how we want it to be. but i think I think teams are really important, and I think you have to you have to find a way to encourage and mentor the people that work for you. And yeah. um, you know I, 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 please don't get the idea that I never made mistakes in leadership. i'm I'm sure I made plenty, but I know when I, manage people in my unit, you know, I had, you know, 10 or 12 agents, supervisors working for me and support employees. When one of them would come in with an issue, I had to learn to close the door, put my phones on hold, tell my secretary, no calls, come out from behind my desk and sit next to them. And it always happened at a terrible time. It was always when I'm terribly busy, but you had to force yourself to take the time to give this person your full and undivided attention and listen to what they had to say and a really funny thing happened i realized that very rarely did i have to make a decision or solve a problem because most people weren't there looking for a solution they were looking for me to hear what they had to say about something Wonderful. and that and that took me a while to understand that mm-hmm. they're not looking for me to solve a problem you know and of course Men and women go through this all the time, Uh, you know, relationships, um, you know, where particularly men, I I think uh, I'm certainly guilty of it, are more focused towards quickly moving to problem solving. So when your spouse, and I don't want to get too gender specific here, comes to you with some issues, uh, problems with their work or family issues or whatever, they're not looking for you necessarily to solve the problems. Okay, this is what you tell them. Here's what you do they just want you to listen and understand how they feel. And, and I think that's important when we're dealing with our subordinates. It's important when we're dealing with our clients. I mean, for example, when if you're dealing with a client and the client has a problem and there's always problems, you know, on the deliverables that you promised and they're coming back to you because you're the sales representative, you know, and uh, you don't say, okay, say no more, we're going to fix it. We're going to fix it. You know, give them, the time to listen to what they're saying so you fully understand the problems that this issue is causing them maybe it's making them look bad in the eyes of their boss you know and and it's going to allow you to formulate a better plan just don't be in a rush slow down acknowledge your point of view i hear what you're saying it sounds like we really uh did not fulfill the expectations that you had on this order is is that right do i understand that correctly yeah, yeah, that's what I want to say to you, you know. <laughs> and be- because of this, we put you in a really in a bind with your boss, who's now been taking it out on you and may affect your bonus and your your career aspirations. And it sounds like that's, uh, you know, really bothering you and and has upset you. Yes, yes, you you understand. So uh, it's really simple stuff, Isabel. I mean, I, I yeah. kind of laugh. I think I think people tend to try to make things too complicated sometimes. I'm a maybe it's because I'm a simple guy and I can't do the complicated, but I don't know. But I think <laughs> I think just uh, just be a good listener, you know.
0: I love that. And it's such a great advice for everyone again, watching and listening, because as many people, they know in different places in their life and professionally and personally, it's also a great opportunity to revisit what we think we're doing right and what we're thinking we're doing wrong. And we have opportunity to improve, finding the great mentor and also being in an environment where we can be ourselves and where we can truly thrive when somebody feels That they appreciate, want to listen to us, and want to give us extra boost to continue to progress and be successful.
1: Yeah, and and, you know that even comes into play. Let let's say you're competing for business, and you don't get the contract. Yes, you know, there's nothing wrong with following up with your clients and listen. I know you went in a different direction, and I'm not here today to try to get you to change your mind. But I would really appreciate if you could share with me where you think we came up short. What, yes. what could we have done better to win your business? Because we obviously did not. In other words, it, you're putting the blame on you, not, you know, why didn't you pick me? Just say, no, we obviously did not uh, live up to the expectations that you set for this contract. And, and because of that, understandably, we lost the business. But I want us to be better in the future. I want us to be able to serve yeah. our clients better, and if you wouldn't mind, I'd really appreciate the input. If you're uncomfortable, that's fine too. But if 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 you don't mind, I'd like to know how, how did I personally not live up to your expectations? And I'm a big boy. Tell me, I can take it. And uh, you know, I, I want to know because I want to be better at this. You know, and I think most people will say, well, now that you mention it, it wasn't so much you, but that other person from your company that you brought. I just didn't like their smirk or their attitude. Well, now you've learned something important, you know, or, yeah. you know, when you asked us about this process, I, you didn't sound to me like you were really interested in, in how we did it. Well, that's how we learn to improve. You know, I mean, yes. human beings don't start off and never obtain perfection. You know, we're, we're constantly making hopefully less old mistakes, but we make new ones all the time. And you know, the way we stop making those same mistakes is we learn from those and, and try to modify or change our behavior. And that's what we need to do.
0: Brilliant. So for someone who had this amazing tenure in one of the most prestigious uh, career, careers of as a uh, in FBI for uh, successful on top of that, right? It's just so many people retire, but again to make the amazing waves and and changes and transformation, and also to be chief FBI crisis negotiator and 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 ha- head that unit and and lead the teams and future generations of the phenomenal hostage negotiators. Obviously, you carved outstanding legacy for yourself. And of course, family and everything else that you accomplished in your professional and personal career. But I'm curious, Gary obviously also wrote the book for everyone, please go check it out. Um, It's available on Amazon, Stalling the time which I want to tell
1: it's called stalling for time I'm,
0: so I'm sorry the stalling the time of uh, for time stalling for the time because a lot of times we're stole for the time and that's exactly some questions I have about that uh my life as a hostage negotiator, as that the FBI and hostage negotiator. So please double check that. Uh, it's available on Amazon. I ordered mine and I cannot wait to read it, but I had a chance to check a little bit before uh we had a, this conversation. I'm curious, what would you like? Your you let it, you lived it. And what would you like to leave as a, your legacy? What what would be something that you will say, I feel like I really accomplished my mission? What would be that, Gary?
1: That's interesting. I don't know that anybody's um, asked me that question. But I mean, I, I hope, um, I hope I made a difference um, in my, you know, sort of focused field of law enforcement hostage crisis negotiations. I feel that um, I really led the way to move to a a crisis intervention model. And, and Put that in the FBI curriculum that spread through all throughout the world, because it wasn't really taught before then. I didn't invent that stuff. I I took it from other places, from the counseling field and so forth, but I saw its applicability to what we did. So I I mean, I like to think um, there's no way of ever knowing the numbers, but through that effort, there are a lot of people alive today, including police officers because we resolve situations peacefully without someone having to use deadly force or put their life in, in jeopardy. Well, I mean, that's, that's more than enough for me. I mean, that feels a pre- pretty good legacy. You know um, I think mean, for most people, we always think our children and our grandchildren are our most important legacy, but you know, I had to be realistic. My grandkids probably will never fully understand or appreciate the things I did, but that's okay. You know, we all want, uh, in our own little way to make life a little bit better, um, to advance the cause, the issue, you know, and I, I feel very, uh, I feel that's very important, you know, to try to make the world a better place and, um, to leave a better place for my children and my grandchildren. And if part of that is making law enforcement, um, you know, be better at resolving conflict and saving lives well you know that's okay i can live with that that's that's pretty good stuff actually so i feel okay. good about that but it's certainly nothing i did on my own i mean there are a lot of people that uh, contributed to where the state of law enforcement negotiations exists today and i'm just glad to be a part of that
0: that's fantastic. And again, I'm sure, as as time passed by, and obviously, maybe another book in, in, in the works. But uh, for everyone again watching and listening. Um, could you please tell because when you negotiate everything slows down and some people purposely are buying the time that So do you mind sharing a little bit how this book came about and then also what they can learn? Everybody that is watching and listening, what they can learn and have it as a practical application.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I had been retired. I retired from the FBI in 2003 and became a a corporate uh, conflict resolution consultant. And I had so many people say to me that I had... A very unique and interesting, impactful career, and that I should write a book about it. Well, after all, I began to believe them and say, "Well, maybe I should," you know. And (laughs) um, and so after I had done consulting for five years, I I spoke to a friend of mine who's a very uh, successful author, and he put me in touch with his literary agent, and and she really helped guide me through the process. And she said, "You've had a amazing career can you write and i said i don't know you know so she said write a <laughs> write a sample chapter and and next thing you know you know several publishing houses wanted the book and they got into a bidding war so i was quite fortunate and um writing the book was uh, you know w- was a an interesting challenge you know because uh, random house that bought the book wanted 100 what they wanted 85,000 words i gave them 185,000 words so we had to really there were so many cases that didn't even get in the book, but that's, they wanted a little bit smaller, tighter book, uh, for a particular audience. And, uh, so I did that, and, you know, and then the book was later used for the Waco TV show on the Paramount channel where Michael Shannon plays me. They just finished filming the second season, which will be out next year. Netflix has a big documentary coming out, um, on Waco next year that I'll be, uh, featured in. So, um, Yeah. So it's kind of led to some other projects, you know, you don't really uh, pursue those things in a calculated fashion. They just sort of evolve serendipitously. And, you know, one thing leads to another, but, you know, I mean, I've had a really charmed uh, life, you know, and um, my family certainly paid a price and I travel a lot and uh, work long hours and, you know, face some risks, but um, not untypical for someone in law enforcement, but um, you know, it's all, kind of uh special to look back on now and and to see uh it's funny i mentioned to you earlier that behavioral change stairway model i was at a conference some years ago shows how old you get now some brand new <laughs> negotiator walks up to me and he says have you ever heard of that behavioral change stairway model that's really good stuff and i said yeah i'm i'm familiar with it <laughs> but, I you actually know, created it yeah, I actually wrote it. but it's funny and it, and it kind of shows you that um the water fills in fast behind you, as one of my colleagues used to say. That's beautiful. You know, and, and you say, "Okay, my my time in the spotlight in this little niche is past, and now it's time for other people to shine and 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 be seen, and and that's fine. That's the natural order of things, you know. It's just just the way it is. And um, yeah, so I have a. It's taken me most of my life to have a good balance of uh, time, health, and financial security and I'm trying to live it for everything it's worth, you know?
0: That's fantastic. That's a great attitude. And again, everyone watching and listening here on this episode of Legacy Leader this is what it looks like to live and lead um, your legacy and of course then you automatically building your legacy simultaneously and leaving tremendous impact for generations to come. Um, Gary, in conclusion, uh, do you mind sharing how the others can find you? Yeah, if well, I wanted to connect with you. <laughs>
1: um, I have a website, you know, www.garynessner.com. Uh, and on that, there's you know, links to podcasts I've done and articles I've written and interviews and, um, you know, all that sort of thing. Uh, some links to some documentaries I've been involved.